We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. from Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we have sung to you. We have prayed to you. We have confessed to you. And now we need to hear from you. And so we pray that you'd come and speak. Some of us in this room, we come this morning utterly convinced of the things that we have been reading and singing. And others of us unconvinced. Some of us come full of belief. And some of us come full of unbelief. And some of us come having once believed trying to figure out if we could believe again. But all of us, all of us, no matter where we are on the spiritual spectrum, we come as people who are in need, in need of your voice in our life, of your wisdom, of your grace, of your mercy, of your word, of your ways, of your son, of your help, and of your spirit. And so would you come now and meet us and speak to us. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You can take your seats. Today we are finishing up uh, a series on the vision of our church for the last three weeks, last two weeks, we have been looking at why we exist as a church. And this is so important for us to do so that those of us who've been around Resurrection Oakland for a little while never forget why we exist. And so that those of us who are new 
actually understand kind of what is this church about. And what we have said from the very beginning of this church, which, which started just a little over three years ago, from the very beginning when we were just 30 people meeting in someone's living room. Some of you here this morning were part of that. And what we were talking about then and dreaming about then and praying about then is the same thing that we're talking and dreaming and praying about now. That what we said from the very beginning is we want to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for our city. Two weeks ago, we looked at the church part. What does it mean to be a church? It means that we are a community of broken, messy people. None of us has it all together. But we have been brought together into a new family. That's, that's the primary metaphor in the New Testament for the church. It says that the church is a family. That means it is a community of people who are broken and messy, but they love and care for one another. And it's not just a new family, but it's a diverse family. It's a multi-ethnic family because we are not bound by color or class or socioeconomic status, but we are bound by our shared need for God's grace and our shared experience of his love and our shared desire to worship and follow him. We're a church, but we are a church not just for ourselves. And it's been said that the church is the only institution in the world that exists primarily for the benefit of those that are not its members. And so last week we talked about what does it mean that we are a church for the unconvinced? Some of you are here this morning. That's where you are. We're so glad that you're here. We want every Sunday to be a good Sunday to invite a skeptical friend. A, a church where people can belong before they believe. Where they can come and explore the claims of Jesus from the inside. A church where people's questions are valued a church that talks to skeptics and not about them. Because at the end of the day, we are all filled with unbelief. We're all wrestling, actually. So we want to be a church for the unconvinced. And today, we're talking about what it means to be a church for the city. Let me say this. The thing that we want to be known for in Oakland is not this building and it's not our sermons, and it's not our music, and it's not any programs or events that we have. The thing that we want to be known for in this city by people outside these walls is for the way that we love and care for this city, for the way that we serve the city. Can you imagine what it would look like if a church had that kind of reputation? So we're looking at this last chapter in Jonah today. The very last chapter. Jonah's only four chapters. The whole chapter, we actually printed it, read it for you today. And if you're, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you might think, wait a minute, Jonah, that's that book about that big fish. Uh, actually, no. Jonah is a book about a big God who has a big heart for a big city. Look at the very last verse. Look at how it ends. God says, to Jonah, should I not have concern for the great Nineveh, for the great city of Nineveh? Jonah is about God's love for the city. That's what the book is about. And it has so much to teach us about what it means to be a church that loves the city. We're going to look at four things today. What does it mean to be a church for the city? What do we need to do to be a church that loves the city? Four things. Celebrate the city. 
Own our Nineveh. Three, weep like God. Four, seek the good. Celebrate the city. Own our Nineveh. Weep like God. Seek the good. First, celebrate the city. God tells Jonah three times in this book to go to the city of Nineveh. And every time that he tells him that, he refers to Nineveh as that great city. You see it in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, and then chapter 4, verse 11. God says to Jonah, I want you to go to that great city. Now, here's what you need to know about Nineveh. Not everything about Nineveh was great. And Nineveh had a multitude of issues. There was real spiritual darkness there. There was incredible opposition to belief in God. It was very progressive. It was extremely secular. Does that sound familiar? Does it remind you of any other city you've ever lived in? And God does not say to Jonah, go to that dark, evil city. He says, I want you to go to that great city. And here's the point. Despite all of its problems, which are many, the posture that God takes towards the city is not one of disdain or scorn. It is one of love. God loves the city. God celebrates the city. And not just, listen, not just Nineveh and not just Oakland, but the Bible seems to say that God has special affections for the city. Uh, Do you know what the Bible says eternity will be like? In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible... We get a vision of eternity. And and they tell us us how the world will be in the end when God has, has the world the way that he wants it. And John, who is writing, gets this vision. And he says this in chapter 21, verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Some of you are like, I'd get a lot more excited about a holy Lake Tahoe, a holy Yosemite. I've lived here 17 years, by the way, and I've never been to Yosemite. Stop judging me. Stop. I, look, at, I, I lay before you my wounds. Mm, okay. There, let me tell you, there is incredible nature in the way the Bible paints eternity. There is this tree of life with leaves like you have never seen. There is crystal clear water unlike you have ever seen. There's a garden like you've never seen. There is all sorts of natural splendor, but the Bible says that when God has the world the way that he wants it, it's going to be a city. The world to come will be an urban world. God loves cities. Jonah, on the other hand, hated the city. See, Jonah, if you know the book, Jonah went to Nineveh, but he went holding his nose. He had had an attitude of contempt. And see, the question is, what's your attitude towards Oakland? What's your posture towards Oakland? Are you like God or are you like Jonah? Do you celebrate the city or do you disdain 
the city. Let's get practical here for just a second. Is your tendency to only see the challenges and the problems of living here? The traffic, the parking, the crime. I mean, let me just tell you, you're not a true Oaklander until your car has been broken into. You know, the crime, the, uh, the cost of living. Schools can be challenging. Developing community and friendships can take time. It's a transient place. Maybe you don't jive with the politics of this place. I, I know, listen, I've been here a long time. I know that there are challenges to living here. But if you only see the challenges, you'll never love the city like God loves the city. And this is especially true for those who are transplants. Some of you ended up here because of job or because of school, and this is not where you plan to stay long-term. Let me just tell you, I think that more people need to consider God's calling to this place. And I would challenge you with that this morning. I also do not think that it is a sin to move. I do know this. It is disobedience to God to not love the place that you are in while God has you there. To not love it and to not serve it and to give yourself to it. To see its uniqueness, to see its beauty, to see its diversity, to see its greatness. And that brings us to the second point because how do you come to love and celebrate the city if you don't? See, why is it, when you think about this, why is it that Jonah is so disdaining towards the city? Why does he hate it so much? One, one of the themes of Jonah chapter 4 is anger. Uh, the word anger shows up six times in this chapter. There's only 11 verses. shows up six times. L- look at verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah was angry. And I will tell you, anger is one of the most, it's one of the most helpful diagnostics in life. Anger is kind of like one of those lights on your car dashboard. <clears throat> I drive a 2002 Camry, so my lights are always going off. Uh, nothing works in that car. But what do those lights do? They tell you that there's a problem, right? And that's what anger does. If you feel angry, it's telling you that there's a problem. What anger cannot do is tell you whether the problem is inside you or outside you. And here's a universal reality. When we get angry, we tend to assume that the problem is always outside of us. How many of you are in a relational conflict right now and you feel like it's, it, it's, the other person is the problem? Maybe it's a roommate, friend, community group member, spouse. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because you might be sitting right next to that person. You both raise your hands. That's an awkward moment. <laughs> you know, in, in my 17 years being a pastor... Rarely does anyone come to me and say, I'm sideways with somebody, and I, th- I think I'm the problem. Rarely. Uh, King, of, King of the Hill, anybody seen that TV show? Me neither. But <laughs> Hank Hill, Hank Hill, who's kind of one of the main characters in that show, has this great quote. He says, I don't have a problem with anger. I have a problem with idiots. See, it's always someone else. The problem is always outside. It's always out there. Why is Jonah so angry? Nineveh. Those people. 
They are the problem. He cannot believe that God would be merciful to people like that. And that's why in verse 5, I want you to notice this. It says that Jonah goes outside the city. Jonah thinks that by escaping the city, he can escape the problem. I said this earlier. The truth is that Nineveh had all sorts of problems. It was a dark city. It was, it was even a barbaric city, actually. But the whole point of this book is that God is seeking to bring his love and grace to this big, irreligious, immoral city. And it's the religious, moral person who is actually getting in the way. Nineveh is not the problem. Jonah is the problem. The problem is that Jonah doesn't think he has a problem. He sees Nineveh's problems, but he doesn't see his problems. He doesn't see his self-righteousness. He doesn't see his smugness. He doesn't see his pride. He doesn't see his racism towards the Ninevites, which is a whole other sermon. He doesn't see that the same evil out there is the same evil in here. And you see, and until you see that there is a Nineveh in you, there is a Nineveh in all of us, you will never love and celebrate the city because you'll always be looking down on it and other people in it. You know, that's the thing about living in the city. There's always someone to look down on. You can always find someone who is not as accomplished as you, who doesn't have their life as together as you do. Living in the city can make you incredibly self-righteous and incredibly judgmental and incredibly critical. So to love the city, you've got to see that the problem is not just out there, but it's in here. And friends, this is why Christianity actually gives you unique resources to love the city, because it humbles you. It says that none of us have it all together. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Which means that if you understand yourself rightly, you understand that you're more broken and messed up and in need of God's grace than you know. By the way, this is why we have a time of confession every Sunday in our service. Some of you are like, I've never been to a church that does that confession thing. Why do we do that? We do it because it is essential to becoming people who have the capacity to love this place, to love this city. We judge no one but ourselves. We critique no one but ourselves. We point our finger at no one but ourselves. We look in, not out. John Newton actually put it this way. He said, when people are right with God, they are hard on themselves and easy on others. But when they are not right with God, they are easy on themselves and hard on others. This is what Jonah's doing. Jonah thinks that he deserved God's grace and Nineveh deserved God's judgment. Thought the problem was outside, not inside. The more you see that there is a Nineveh in you, the more able you are to love the city. Number three, weep like God. To love the city, you have to weep like God. What's interesting about this passage is that both Jonah and God are crying. Both of them. In verse 11, God says, should I not be concerned about Nineveh? And, and the word concern there 
is a Hebrew word for compassion. It means to grieve, to, to have your heart broken. God is weeping over the city. Okay, but what is Jonah weeping over? See, Jonah's weeping too. Look at verse 10. God says to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant. Same word. And what verse 6 tells us is that this plant was actually bringing comfort to Jonah from the scorching sun, but then God took it away. See, Jonah is weeping over his comfort. And God is weeping over the city. Jonah is is weeping over a plant. And God is weeping over the city. Jonah has compassion over the plant. God has compassion over the city. Jonah is crying for himself, and God is crying for the city. Now, why is God, why would God weep over the city? Look at the rest of verse 11. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Jonah is weeping over a plant. You know what God is weeping over? People. And that's what the city has a lot of. God is weeping over people. He sees their pain, He sees their brokenness. He sees their sorrow, he sees their suffering, he sees their tears, and he shares them. Listen to this. The God of the Bible is a weeping God. And that's actually what we see lived out in the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he enters into the city. The last week of his death, it says that he saw the city and he wept over it. B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian who lived over 100 years ago, he, he wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And what he did was he looked at every instance in the Gospels that recorded or described the emotions of Jesus. And what he said was that by far the most typical statement to describe the emotional life of Jesus was this phrase, he was filled with compassion. He says that if you look at all four Gospels together, Jesus wept 20 times more than he laughed. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And it's not because he was a depressive person. No, Jesus had supernatural joy. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet he grieved more than he laughed because his compassion so connected his heart to ours that our pain brings him pain. And our sadness brings him sadness. I want want to give you just two very quick applications of what this means. The first is a comfort and the second is a challenge. It's a comfort. Some of you, you are in the midst of deep suffering right now. This moment, today, you walk into this room and you are holding back the tears because there are things going on in your life that no one else knows about in this room. And you feel like things are falling apart. And you need to hear me say this again. Your pain brings God pain. Your sadness brings God sadness. Do you remember the movie Selma came out back, I think it's 2014. It was about Martin Luther King's march in Selma, Alabama, to fight for equal voting rights in the civil rights movement. There's a scene in that movie 
where in that protest, a young, black, 27-year-old protester, peaceful protesting, is shot by police, and he's killed, and he's shot right in front of his grandfather. This is man's only grandson. And in and, and the next scene, you have this grandfather. He's at the morgue, and he is standing over his grandson's body, and he is weeping. And Dr. King comes walking down the hallway, and this grandfather cannot believe that Dr. King has come to see him. And Dr. King grabs him by the arms, and he looks him in the eyes, and he says, there are no words to soothe you. But the one thing that I can tell you for, sir, for certain is that God cried first. God cries first. I mean, whatever you are going through, God sees it. And he is neither unaware of it, nor is he unmoved by it, but God sees your tears and he shares them. What a comfort for a Christian. Second is a challenge. And the challenge is this. Does your heart break at the brokenness of the city? See, to love the city, you have to weep over the city. But to weep over the city, you have to see the brokenness. But to see the brokenness, you have to get close. You have to get close. You have to get involved. You have to take time. Is that happening for you? Is your, let me ask you this. Is your life too buffered from the pain that exists in this city? From people who are hurting? Is it too buffered by your neighborhood? or your social circles, or your friendships? What needs to change so that you are rubbing shoulders with people who are hurting? Or is your life too busy? You say, I, I, don't, I, you know, I, just, I don't really have time. I'm, I'm happy to give money. No, God doesn't just want you to get money, give money. He wants you to get involved. You say, but I'm so busy. Friends, this is the God of the universe. He's running the show. And he takes time for you and for me and for people who are hurting. So if you don't have margins, you got to figure out a way to create some. Because to love the city, you have to weep like God. You have to own your Nineveh. You have to celebrate the city. And then here's the last thing. Seek the good. Seek the good. All right. Jonah, my favorite ending to any book in the Bible. My all-time favorite ending. Look at verse 11. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also any many animals? <laughs> you know, I got a dog. She's like 15. She's just kind of hanging on at this point. You know, I love it. What is going on here? Actually, let me say this. Uh, other translations which are a little more accurate they don't say animals, they say cattle. It's like God looks at Jonah and says, how could I not care about this place? Have you seen the cows? Now what is going on here? In the ancient world, livestock, it was integral to the flourishing of the city. You know, it was, it was, it was the, the economy of the city. As the cows went, so the city went. I mean, what, what, what God is talking about here 
He's talking about what is actually critical to the social fabric and the well-being of the city. God is telling Jonah that he cares about the good of the city, the flourishing of the city. Not just the church growing, but the city flourishing. And he is saying, Jonah, I want you to have a heart like that. I want you to care about the good of the city. And years later, he would tell the Israelites who were exiled in the city of Babylon the exact same thing. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. See, root yourself in the city. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile and pray to the Lord for it. God calls the Israelites to seek the good of the city. God calls Jonah to seek the good of the city. And if you are a Christian, God calls you to seek the good of the city. You know, I asked earlier if you could imagine what it would look like if a church had the reputation in the city of, of more than anything else, the thing it was more known for than anything else was the way that it loved the city. Do you know that that's actually what the earliest Christian churches were known for? Rodney Stark, who's, he's a sociologist of religion, he's taught at a handful of uh, kind of elite academic universities. He actually did his PhD work at Cal, go Bears. Um, he's not a Christian. And he has done extensive research on the early church, these early Christians. And, and this is what he says. He says, in a world entirely lacking social services, the willingness of Christians to care for others was put on dramatic display when two great plagues swept the empire, one beginning in 165 and the second in 251. Mortality rates climbed higher than 30%. Pagans tried to avoid all contact with the afflicted, often casting the still living into gutters. But Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick, even though some believers died doing so. Christian social services also were visible and valuable during the frequent and natural and social disasters afflicting the Greco-Roman world, like earthquakes and famines and floods and riots. Christianity also offered a strong community in a disorganized, chaotic world. Greco-Roman cities were terribly overpopulated. Antioch, for example, had a population density of about 117 inhabitants per acre, which is more than three times that of New York City today. The smell of sweat, urine, feces, and decay permeated everything. Outside on the street, mud, open sewers, and manure lay everywhere, and even human corpses were found in the gutters. Newcomers and strangers divided into many ethnic groups harbored bitter antagonism that often erupted in violent riots. But for all these ills, Christianity offered a unifying subculture bridging these div divisions. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity and hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate fellowship 
into cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. The way that Christians love their city is what turned the first century, the first three centuries, upside down. Can you imagine what God would do in our city through a church like that? I have what I call a 20-year hope for our church. And the hope is this. The hope is that we would become a church that is so engaged in this city with our money, with our time, with our neighbors and our communities and our schools and our government and our institutions and with the poor and the oppressed and those who are marginalized and the weak and the vulnerable. That we would become people who are so engaged that we would live so radically, so beautifully, so sacrificially, so generously that if we were to suddenly have to shut our doors in 20 years as a church, that there would be people in this city, not a part of this church, that would say, Oakland is worse off. That that church on 17th and Franklin, that that group of people is not here anymore. Now that's a big hope. And the question is, is how are we going to get there? Because it will not be convenient. It will not be comfortable. It will not be easy. It will require lots of time. It will come at incredible cost. It will take all sorts of sacrifice of our time, of our money, of our emotions, of our relationships. And you might even, you know, at the end of the sermon, you might even be a little bit overwhelmed at this point. How can I be a part of something like that? Where do I even start? The question is not where, actually. The question is how. How do you start? See, before you can take part in God's love for the city, You have to receive God's love for you. Let me say that again. Before you can take part in God's love for the city, you have to receive God's love for you. And that is the invitation of this table. At this table, we find one who succeeded in every way where Jonah failed. Jonah went outside the city to condemn it, But Hebrews 13 says that Jesus went outside the city to die on a cross and to accomplish its salvation. Friends, this table tells us that God does not just weep for us, but he is a God who dies for us, who who sees all of the ways that you and me are just like Jonah and just like Nineveh. All of the ways that our lives are more of a mess than we could even begin to articulate. And rather than disdaining us, he dies for us. So the people who are more sinful than we know could be more loved than we could ever fathom. That's the invitation to you this morning. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it 
And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table and for all that you have done to make a way for people like us to come to it. Broken, flawed, selfish, self-righteous people. And yet loved in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, all that he has done for us. Would you help us to believe these things today as we come and eat and drink together? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.